Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. You honor us by finding us and listening in. We pray this sermon stirs up your love for Jesus and grows you in your faith. But before we begin, we ask that you not let this podcast, or any podcast for that matter, replace the local church in your life. You need to be a member of a local congregation and under the shepherding of that flock's pastor. So please become part of a local church if you aren't currently. If you'd like more information about our church, please go to www.mountzionchula.org. Enjoy our podcast. (laughs) Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. we've been working through Exodus for pretty much this whole year. Um, There are parts of Exodus we're going to fly through. Um, So we did the 10 plagues in two sermons. We, um, as we get to the end of the book, chapters 25 through 40, a lot of it um, is is multiple chapters documenting the same events. So a lot of that we will fly through, but we will be in chapter 20 for the next 10 weeks um, or technically the next 12 weeks since two Sundays, we won't be in Exodus 20, but Um, It's the Ten Commandments. We're going to take each commandment one sermon at a time. Um, Two things we need to understand up front about the Ten Commandments. Number one, these are the basics of what it looks like to bear God's image in the world. And secondly, all of us fall short of these commandments. And that's the point. That's the point. Recognizing that leads us to run to Jesus. They are the basic guidelines that we are to follow, that we're to strive to follow... But we don't follow them perfectly, and that's why we need Jesus. We run to him. So there's an expectation that we keep these, but there's also an understanding that we ultimately can't. As we get through all of these over the next ten weeks, um, based looking at what all of Scripture says about each of these commandments, we've all broken all ten of them. Now you'll say, I've never killed anybody, and I know that's one of the commandments, Uh, I'm glad you haven't killed anybody, but according to Scripture, you've broken that one as well, and we'll get to that when we get to number six. Um, We've broken them all. All of us are guilty of each one of these, and that's the point. That's why we run to Jesus. Exodus includes 52 laws in total from chapters 20 through 24. Um, These first 10 and then 42 more to follow. These 10 are the summation of everything coming in the next 42 and in Leviticus and beyond. Many of the laws in the Old Testament are actually circumstantial laws about how to carry out the Ten Commandments. Um, And so what if, um, what if, you know, you shall not murder, but what if I accidentally kill the person? Okay, well, there's a law on how to handle that. Um, What if, um, you know, what what if a a person does this particular thing on the Sabbath? What do we do? Well, that's another law. Um, The Ten Commandments are a reflection of God's character. They're a reflection of God's character. They're a picture of how we carry out our Genesis 2 mandate to bear God's image in the world. They are ultimately a picture of holiness. So for the next 10 weeks, we're going to take one at a time, work through them, and see how each of them speak. And so we're going to deal with the first one today. Um, Exodus 20, verses 1 through 3. And God spoke all these words, saying... I am the Lord your God 
who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. It's important that we don't gloss over the first two verses of the Ten Commandments, verses 1 and 2, because we often do. When we're listing the Ten Commandments, we start at verse 3 and we work our way through verse 17 and we list them one at a time and we skip over verses 1 and 2. We turn these into a list of rules to follow and this is how you, you, you keep yourself out of the principal's office in the Christian version. Um, if, you know, if we just hung these on the schools and the courthouses, there'd be no crime. Uh, I, I don't really buy that. The human heart's sinful and loves to sin, but the Ten Commandments are much more than just a list of rules to follow. There's something like wedding vows. That's what they are. When I stood on stage at Northside Baptist, uh, I was asked, do you take Adrian to be your wife, to love, cherish, and honor her in sickness and in health, and richer for poorer, for better or for worse, till death do you part? I was asked all those questions. Those were the stipulations of my commitment to her. And it's the same here. These commandments are the wedding vows of the relationship between God and man. That, that's what they are. The Ten Commandments are a list of, com- of commitments in view of the fact that God is our Savior. Verse 2, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He lets them know that up front. He lets them know. I am the Lord, your God. I am your Lord. He says, I brought you out of slavery. I did that. I brought you out of Egypt. Do you remember where you were? Do you remember how Egypt was treating you? I rescued you out of that. So you're mine. So here are the expectations to that relationship. We don't obey God just because we're supposed to. We don't just follow a bunch of rules because that's what we're supposed to do. No, we aim to follow the Ten Commandments because God is our Savior, because we love Him. Obedience comes out of the relationship there. Jesus, in the same way, speaking to Israel here, he he rescued them out of Egypt. Jesus rescued us in a similar way, out of our sin. You weren't in slavery in Egypt, but you were in slavery to sin. John 8, 34, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. We, We were all slaves to sin. If you're here and you're not born again, you're a slave to sin this very moment. You are. If you've been saved, you've been rescued out of that. But Christ came and rescued you from the slavery of your sin. He brought you out of the land of Satan and out of the house of sin, just as God did with Israel. And when you see Christ crucified by faith and turn turn from your sins, Christ redeems you from slavery. If you were captive to sin and it it wanted nothing but evil, why would you go back to it? Yet we do. It wanted to destroy us, and we continue going back to it like an abusive husband. These commandments are trying to call us out of our old life, the life that destroyed us, the life that made us miserable. That starts with how we worship. And so that's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. If you're going to go out into the world as Genesis 1 and 2 commands and reflect God's image to the world, it starts with who God is. It starts with, with, with who he is and representing him in that way. God puts forth a truth about himself in this command. He is the only God. He's the only one. 
We're very familiar with that when we look at all of Scripture, aren't we? Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In other words, the Lord is the only God. He is one. John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4.12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. But that would have been unheard of in the days of Moses when, we, when he's given these commandments. That would have been unheard of, a worldview where God is the only God. This was monotheism and a polytheistic culture. In this day, most everybody believed in multiple gods. The, the way it is, every village had their own personal deities. Most had multiples, and there were a lot of stories of how the universe came into being. Um, some of them involved deities fighting with each other. Some of them involved deities procreating, and that's how the universe came to be. Um, it was just assumed that each village and each community had their own god or gods, the same way each town today has their own mayor. And when two cities fought against each other it, in war, it was very much this attitude of, my god can beat up your god. That's what they did. God gives the Israelites a monotheistic worldview. He puts that before them. God lays before Israel a different viewpoint. Monotheism. Monotheism. Mono means one. Poly would be many. So when you think monogamy, that is being married to one person. When you think polygamy, that's being married to multiple people. Monotheism is worshiping one God polytheism is worshiping many gods. This is a monotheistic view in a polytheistic culture. There is only one God, he says. It is Yahweh. Yahweh. The other gods of all the other villages, they don't exist. The universe didn't come into being through, through two deities duking it out or uh, procreating or, or any other way. It began, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God existed. Before anything else existed, there was one God existing as three persons in heaven. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Everlasting in existence, never having come into existence, simply being there forever. In all of eternity past, He was there. Completely satisfied and needing absolutely nothing. His joy was overflowing. So He sat down like an author or a painter to dis and, and, and he decided to display the beauty of his heart on the cosmos. He began to paint his masterpiece. He began to write his once upon a time. This God is the only God. There are no others. There are no others. He is saying, by making this commandment, he is saying that the gods of all the other villages around Israel are fake. They're fake. They don't exist. It's not that there is a pantheon of gods out there and Yahweh just happens to be the most powerful one or the highest authority. That's not what it is. Yahweh is the only God. And all the other villages are worshiping made-up things. He is saying that all other religions around us in 2023 are worshiping deities that are not real. Be that Islam, Hinduism, Scientology, Mormonism, Judaism, materialism, postmodernism, 
transgenderism, nationalism, and all the other isms out there. They're all worshiping things that don't exist. We live in a world not that unlike the day that these people lived in. We live in a day just like the the people of Israel lived in. One of the most offensive things you can say in our modern day is, Jesus is the only way to God. People often describe religion using two different analogies, the first being everyone climbing a mountain. All the different religions are just different men climbing a mountain. They're on different sides of the mountain, but they're all going to the same spot. And the other one that's often used is um, multiple blind men encountering an elephant. So you got five blind men, all those are the religions. They find an elephant, and they each grab a different part of the elephant. So one of them grabs the the, the trunk of the elephant and says, oh, this is a nice strong tree right here. And one of them puts his hand up against the side of it and says, oh, this is a really hard rock wall. And one of them grabs the tail and says, oh, wow, it's a rope. Maybe I can climb up it. The, the problem with both of those analogies is it assumes that man has to figure out how to get to God on his own. It's not true that all religions are basically the same. That's what you'll hear. That's what people say. Sure, all religions are basically the same. They all believe in love and goodness. They only differ on matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God's salvation, and about 45 other essential things. You see those coexist stickers on people's cars? And um, I agree that all religions should coexist. That's one of the great things about our nation. You can worship whatever you want here. They can coexist, but they cannot all be true. They cannot all be true because they contradict each other. They contradict. Look no further than what they say about Jesus. Let me tell you what five religions believe about Jesus. Christians believe Jesus was God incarnate. He died on the cross. He rose again. He's coming again one day to judge the living and the dead. He's the second member of the, of the Godhead, and he um, reigns as king over the universe. Judaism thinks Jesus is a false prophet. Islam thinks Jesus is one of God's greatest prophets, but not the Son of God. And he did not die on the cross, even though historical record says otherwise. But um, Hinduism believes Jesus is one of many manifestations of God, that there is a divine force, and, and that divine force manifests itself to different people in different ways. And so Jesus is as much God as Vishnu is, or um, Allah, or the flying spaghetti monster, or whatever. And then Mormonism believes Jesus is a created being. He's the brother of Satan. All right, how can all those things be true? All those things contradict each other that we just read. He's either the only God or he's a manifestation of God. He's either God's greatest prophet or a false prophet. He's either God incarnate or just a created being that is the brother of Satan, which, how can they all be true? They contradict. Our culture knows nothing of truth. Nothing of truth. They are like Pilate saying before Jesus, what is truth? They're confused. They've confused self-expression with truth. Self-expression and truth are two different things. Self-expression is um, clothing style, um, interior decorations of your house, um, so, so my clothing style is different from some of yours. Uh, the way Adrian and I have our house decorated is different than how some of you have your house decorated. We express ourselves through those things. That's self-expression. If, 
if you give, if, if I gave each of you a sheet of paper and a pencil and told you to draw a picture, each of us are going to draw something different. We are. That's self-expression. Truth is something higher than that. Truth is something higher. It's realities about the world that don't change. Gravity is truth that does not change. It doesn't matter how much you refuse to believe in gravity. If you jump out of a plane, you're falling to planet Earth every time. This is why so many people in our culture believe your gender identity can just be decided and changed as often as your socks. They know nothing of truth and reality. We live in a pluralistic society like Israel did. We live in a polytheistic society. And there is one God over that society, no matter how much they say otherwise. It's not up to man to figure out how to get to God, for that would be hopeless. God shows us what the truth is. God doesn't wait for all of us to climb the mountain and figure out who he is. He comes down the mountain to us. The elephant that all the blind men are trying to figure out, hey, is this a tree? Is this a wall? Is it a rope? It's none of those things. They're all wrong. The elephant that they're trying to figure out what it is has raised his snout and let out a giant elephant noise. And the blind man can suddenly say, oh, that's an elephant. He's told us who he is. God is calling out at the beginning of these commandments, saying, I am the only God. I am the Lord. I am. Remember what I've done for you. I am the only God, and I saved you. So don't worship another God. And the command, it says... The command of verse 3 is to worship that God only. You shall have no other gods before me. You you might see in your footnotes, um, you shall have no other gods besides me. Um, That's probably a better conveying of the idea because it's not, this is not telling you to worship God the most. You know, have no other gods before me. Like, like, you know, have me first place. Make sure none of the other gods are first place. They can have second, third, and fourth place. That's not what we're talking about. Um, you think uh, of continuing the marriage analogy. Um, imagine if I came home and, and I told um, you know, my wife, hey, um, I brought in another woman and I said, hey, uh, this is Janet. I met her at Walmart and she's really sweet. Um, I'm going to start sleeping at her house every Tuesday and Friday, but don't worry. I'm going to give you more love than her. That's not, that wouldn't make any sense. That would be breaking the vows of the relationship. It's not, you shall have no other, you know, put all the other gods, second, third, fourth, and fifth. No, it's have no other gods besides me. You worship God only. God only. You know, I struggled in preparing this sermon because, um, because the first commandment and the second commandment are super similar. And how do you differentiate them? Um, that, because um, the... The, the first commandment is worship God alone. The second commandment is don't worship anything else. So I had a lot of trouble. I almost just did both of them as one sermon, but I decided to break them up. Both deal with worship. You worship God only. We'll go deeper into next week as we deal with the second commandment, but we're constantly drawn away to worship other things other than God himself. Every sin we commit is ultimately an act of worship, whether we're worshiping the bottle or sexual pleasure, or greed, or the grudges that we hold, our own reputation, whatever. Every sin that we commit has at the heart of it false worship. You know, we're often tempted to worship good things. They're good. That's why we worship them. 
We will worship family and job and, and money and sports and entertainment and so many other things. We do that. We, we do that when we take that thing and put it at the center of our lives rather than where God is supposed to be. God is center of our lives, not those things. He's not, off, he's not one of the planets that orbits around the sun of your life, of whatever you've got there. He's the, he's the sun in the center. More than anything, we worship ourselves. We do. What makes us feel good? What makes us happy? That's what we worship. What pleases us? These questions drive our lives rather than asking what pleases God. What makes God happy? What makes God proud? What, what, what is it? We worship what does that for us. Why are we so easily drawn away? Well, I can think of several reasons. It's, it's what everybody does. We, we live in a world where everybody does this. Everybody worships something, and it's typically not the God of the Bible, so it's hard to go against the flow. You've got to look like a weirdo if you're going to worship God alone. And you might get persecuted for worshiping God, uh, uh, for, for, for not worshiping something else in the world. You might get worship, uh, persecuted for worshiping God alone. Secondly, it's easy. I mean, worshiping God is hard. Like, it's hard. You know, worshiping, it goes against our nature to worship God. Worshiping sex is easy. It's easy. It's convenient. It's convenient. I can't see God, right? I can't look up in the sky and, you know, wave at him. But, you know, I can see the numbers in my bank account pretty well. It's, it's convenient. I can see those things. You know, often the things we worship outside of God feels good feels good. The, the, you, you get a buzz off of alcohol when you're worshiping it. You, eating more food when, when you're stuffed is still going to taste good. You know, lust feels good. Materialism feels good. Worshiping God might not make you feel any particular way. It might not make you feel all oogly-googly. There might be seasons where you just have to trust that God is working in your life when you don't feel anything. We worship God alone. We worship God supremely. We worship him supremely. He's our only worship in life. You give every part of yourself and every part of your life to him. Here's some of the statements Jesus made about devotion in the New Testament. Luke 9, 23. Um, Whoever does not, uh, you, you must deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. You must take up your Roman torture device of death and follow me. That's what he says. In other words, you must be prepared to even die for me. Luke 14, 33, anyone of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. If you're going to be my disciple, he says, you've got to leave everything else behind. Matthew 10, 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Those are pretty strong statements of devotion. You see, the temptation is not to give God full reign of your life, but to give him part of it. P part of it. Compartmentalize him to Sunday morning. Maybe Sunday night, Wednesday night. I'll compartmentalize him to when I'm at church. I'll go to church on Sunday, and that's my hour of Jesus time. I'll worship then. Not when I'm cooking dinner for my family, or not when I'm mowing the yard, not when I'm on vacation or exercising or reading a book or whatever. My life is in little quadrants. And, and, and it's like the squares in a waffle. 
And uh, I deal with each quadrant piece by piece. And I deal with that. I do my Jesus stuff in this quadrant. And I do my vacation stuff in this one. And my job stuff in this one. And my family stuff in this one. I've got it all broken up into little quadrants. That, that's what you'll do. And that's not a biblical understanding of life. That's not how it works. God gets full authority over every square of your life. Abraham Kuyper famously said, There is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. He's Lord of all. He's Lord of all. He must be at the center of your life. As I said, he's the sun in the middle of the solar system, and your job rotates around that sun, and your family rotates around that sun, and your money, and your vacation, and everything else that you do rotates around that sun. If you put something else there, if you put your job there, then God rotates around that, and God has to operate in, uh, in accordance with your job, or your family, or your hobbies, or whatever else, and that's not where those things belong. God goes there. We're quite happy to have God in our lives, but only part of it. We must allow him to have lordship over every part of our lives, or we are putting other gods before him. We worship God alone, we worship God supremely, and we worship God specifically. We worship God specifically. We don't worship a generic God. God has specifically told us who he is. He is one God in three persons. He was seen in his fullness in the man Jesus Christ, and we worship that specific God. We worship the God Scripture puts on display. We don't worship the big man upstairs, whoever that is. We don't worship the God of country music who, you know, looks past your drinking and you're sleeping around because you love your grandma. You know, we don't worship the God of the Bible Belt that's about as generic as a butterfly feeling in your stomach. No, we worship the God of the Bible. He has revealed himself in the Bible. We read it, we study it, we learn to know him. Because the more we know him, the more we can worship him fully. We put no other gods before this beautiful God who has told us exactly who he is. So how do you know what you worship? How do you know? Just ask some questions. Who or what gets the highest praise out of my mouth? Who or what do I trust and hope in, especially in hard times? Who or what do, do I call on for help and answers and joy? Who or what do I give credit for? What, who or what do I give credit for all that I have and all that I am? Answer those questions and it might begin to tell you what you worship. You see, Israel failed at this and we have too. I'm going to hit that with every commandment. As I said, we've broken this commandment. If you haven't broken the first, if you claim you haven't broken the first one, you don't understand any of the other nine. You see, Israel, um, you know the story of Hosea, don't you? Um, Hosea was a prophet, and um, God came to him and said, Go marry a prostitute named Gomer. She's over there. Go marry her. And every time she leaves you to go back out on the, on the market, you go get her. You go get her and bring her back. Because she's going to do it every day, Hosea. You're going you're gonna to cook dinner for her and leave it in the oven, and she's never going to come and eat it. You're going to leave a light on for her at night, and she's never going to come home. You're going to make her a spot at the table, and she's not going to be there. 
Gomer continually does that. She continually turns to other lovers. Hosea was to continue loving her despite that. That's our relationship with God. We continually turn to other lovers, and God continues pursuing us and bringing us home. This command is meant to point our eyes to our need of a Savior, because we haven't kept it. But there's one who has. There's one who has. It was Jesus. He came and lived a sinless life on your behalf. He worshipped God perfectly. He worshipped him alone. He worshipped him supremely. He worshipped him specifically. And then he died to pay for your sins. Your sins of not worshipping God perfectly. So that now if you repent and believe the gospel, you can be restored to right relationship with God where you can have him as first in your life. And one day, you will be freed of your sins and God will forever have first place in your heart and life. That will be the story of all of eternity. That's why it will be perfect. Because he will be first in your life forever. And... As we look at the first commandment, the first commandment calls us to the Lord's Supper this morning. As we, we're, we're going to take this after I pray, um, and we're going to take it together. And as we take this supper this morning, we proclaim that this God that we worship is the only God. He's the supreme God, and he's the God of our lives. We proclaim we worship him specifically. We worship the one who gave his body and his blood for us. We worship that God. We take this bread and juice celebrating that the only God put all the other false gods to shame. He died and looked like all evil had won, but he rose again doing what no other God has ever done. Proving his glory. Proving that he's worthy. We take this supper this morning proclaiming to those around us that this is the only God and he's our God. And we worship him only. Let's pray together. Father, I come to you this morning and I, I thank you that you're the only God. You're the only one. There is no other. And we thank you that there's no other because no other one would be as good as you. No other one would be perfect. No other one would be sinless. No other one would be so pure. Show us your glory, Lord. Show us more of yourself. May we never be so enamored with things in this world that do not satisfy, that run out, but be bored with you. Oh God, we repent for where that has been the case. Where we've been excited for the things of this world, and we've been dreading going to church on Sunday. Because that's a boring hour that we've got to sit there and listen to some guy talk. God, I, I pray that we would not do that. I pray that we would long to be with your people, worshiping your son for your glory. And now as we take this supper together, Lord, I pray that you would fill our souls, nourish us, strengthen us, and help us as we go from here to be people who proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And we pray all of this in that, that holy one's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.